This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Pancake Robot, come and get them while they're hot. The Pancake Robot is coming to town. He's mixing up the batter and he's laying it down. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. With author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perotti on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Perotti, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. Today, I am going to talk about Food Allergy Awareness Month, and that turns out to be May. And actually, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'm going to give an option that I think is better for Food Allergy Month than to have it in May. Starting out, though, with some anecdotes. We touched 70 degrees. Fantastic. The family, we went to a shoe store outfitted everybody with shoes. I replaced my 20-year-old sandals that had disintegrated. Everything was great. Three days later, we had a snowstorm. Wild, wild spring. So the temperatures are slowly working their way back up toward normal, but this is one of the chilliest springs I can remember, and I've lived in Wisconsin my entire life. I had a terrific interview with TJ Martinell of Mountain Pass Podcast. Check it out. You can find it on SoundCloud, Mountain Pass Podcast, or just follow my Twitter feed, at SafetyPhD, at SafetyPhD, and you'll find the link where I've shared out the interview that I did with TJ. We talked about my book, School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America, which is officially releasing on Saturday, August 10th, but is pre-ordering right now. Pre-ordering in the United States, Great Britain, Japan, Portugal, Australia, and other places. So it's fun for me to go on and to see the additional locations where the book is being distributed right now, being pre-ordered. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited. People are emailing me saying, hey, Dave, I have already you know, completed the pre-order of the book. Looking forward to it coming out. I do refer to it as the most honest book ever written about the $3 billion school safety industry. I completely back that. This book was about three years in the making, a ton of research, including interviews with Dr. Paul Rapp, head of military medicine, Sean Dickers, professor and multiplayer game designer, and others working with the New York City Planning Department to help bring forward this book. It is really going to be something much different than the typical school safety book. I apply a lot of perspectives, a lot of theories, 
into school safety that really haven't been applied in this field before and do it through a ton of fascinating, exciting stories. One includes a time that I fought a fire in dress clothes and burned the soles off of my shoes. So yeah, another reason to go and get shoes, right? Anyway, check out the interview with TJ Martinell on SoundCloud Mountain Pass podcast. It is his episode number 39. We spend about an hour and 20 minutes talking about the key themes of the book. And something very fascinating that came out of that discussion, which I hadn't thought about before, um, was for me to stay relevant in the area of school safety, I needed to recalibrate my fee structure. Basically, I needed to charge more (laughs) because the industry was charging more for consulting services. So I did increase my fees by about 30% and suddenly was back into that range where people viewed you as credible. So amazing that you could be excluded from opportunities simply because you didn't charge enough. And that's kind of the craziness of the industry right now because of all of the federal money coming in, the state grants that are coming out for safety. If you can spend more, typically that's where people will go. That's the direction. If you have camera A versus camera B, they do the same thing. Camera B is more expensive. People will go with camera B. doesn't make a lot of sense. But again, when you're not fully responsible for those dollars, when they're coming through a block grant that you can spend any way toward safety devices, fortifications, things like that, consultants, um, a lot of wacky stuff happens. So I get into that and and we, we talk about where school safety is at now from the perspective of the student, the parent, the taxpayer, and where things likely will go. So it's a fascinating interview with TJ Martinell. My book is doing very well and you can find it right now Uh, Go online with Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And again, School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America. The cover art is done. The complete book has been laid out cover to cover. So it is going to print. They are stocking the warehouses. And again, they will begin their international shipments in July in their bulk orders. Then in August 10th will be the official release when you can get your hands on a copy, but go ahead and pre-order. A lot of people have been contacting me from all around the country saying, hey, we've pre-ordered your book. Uh, We're very excited. And I just can't say enough about the people who have an interest in wanting to be informed about what's really happening in school safety. You know, I'm empirical. Back in 2013, when I gave a presentation on PBS about school security and crisis preparedness, I was at a podium with 30 pages of citations. And the book also is very much anchored into citations and into research, but it doesn't read as something that would be like a research paper, not anything very thick and clunky like that. But whatever I'm telling you in that paper, whatever I'm sharing, anchors back to a large amount of research that I put in to that position. A few shout outs right away to John Grant and the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California for airing the Safety Doc podcast Monday through 
Saturday, 2 p.m. PST. John Grant, the 405 Media, the League of Extraordinary Podcasters, a, a podcast radio station. Please check it out. The League of Extraordinary Podcasters at the 405 Media. Also, radioandpodcast.com. Radioandpodcast.com with our good friend Jim Mallard. Check out all of the shows. Add it to radioandpodcast.com. Um, also, following a format of a curated radio um, type show. Uh, Jim is picking out specific episodes from his guest, and he has literally hundreds, if not thousands of shows that he goes through and he'll insert into his lineup. So it's always fresh, always exciting. Just a little while ago, he replayed a show where I was a guest and we talked about the Hawaii uh, missile crisis where they thought they had an inbound missile but check out radio and podcast and he's really put a lot of effort into advancing that site and all that it has to offer always quality when you work with jim mallard let's talk about food allergy awareness month so as a student services director in schools i was very closely tied to the food allergy awareness aspect of the student body. That was something that I oversaw with nursing with the food service director, making sure students that had food allergies and allergies in general um, had plans in place to manage those. But there's something very quirky that I'm going to point out today (laughs) and something that frankly needs to be changed. Food Allergy Awareness Month is May. So, okay, Food Allergy Awareness Month is May. And actually, Food Allergy Awareness Week is May 12th through the 18th, 2019. Here's the obvious problem with that. 55 million students attend school in the United States. So... If you are doing a school recognition of Food Allergy Month, of Food Allergy Awareness Week, you're doing this right before students leave for summer vacation. (laughs) So it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense to address Food Allergy Awareness Week at the end of the school year. So what should we do? We should move this to either September or October. So it's fine to do a refresher at the end of the year, but to have this month where we know, you know, 55 million students attend school, and we know that school is a a significant area where food allergies are addressed, uh, there should be some movement on this. There should be somebody saying, you know what, whoever's in this food allergy group um, I, one of the, the main players here is the Food Allergy and Anaphylaxis Connection Team, F-A-A-C-T. Just, we'll say fact. But somebody needs to get some movement here and say, you know what? I don't know why this started in May, uh, but we have to, we have to change it. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to do this in May. We have to move it to the start of the year. Um, so I, I just think that is it's it's a, it's a crazy thing to do this to do this in May. 
So let's talk, though, about allergy management, everything that goes into it. And this will start then to make the argument of why we need to address this at the start of the school year in September, October. And that's not only, you know, the start of a school year, but start when, when students are going, you know, back to daycares, for example. Um, and uh, with fall, you know, we have so many other things that come into play, students coming back to, you know, universities. So it, it affects that post-secondary setting too. So there's, it, it just is the perfect time to do this. But let's, let's talk about this. Um, I wrote an article called Apples for Applesauce and maybe did that about 10 years ago. Here was how basically that article came to be. I was a special education director in a district of about 2,500 students in Wisconsin. And new to that role, solely in a district, I had worked as um, a director where my time was split across some smaller districts, but working solely in, in this one district, I learned that one of the responsibilities I had was to ensure food allergy awareness and food allergy safety for the students in the district that presented with food allergies. Uh, that also included um, making sure we're caring for the medical needs. So students with type one, type two diabetes, for example. So we had a shift mid-year in vendor products. We were getting applesauce from a certain vendor and then halfway through the year, it came from another vendor. That might not seem like a big thing, but it was because the applesauce had a certain amount of, you know, sugar, carbohydrates, you know, whatever, um, per serving with vendor A. That was all calculated out. And then the serving size that would go on a student's tray and everything was, was known. But when it went to vendor B, it significantly changed. Even though it was applesauce, the composition of the applesauce, the amount of sugar, the amount of carbohydrates was different. And we realized that the students that we were serving, the same serving size that, that had um, type 1, especially type 1 diabetes, um, this was having a negative reaction. Um, for, they were having a neg negative reaction to this, right? So we, we finally kind of figured out what was going on, and we pinpointed it down to this, this applesauce that it changed and we didn't realize that even though it was applesauce, it was different as far as how much, again, sugar, carbohydrates, things like that. So it brought this massive awareness of how often were we changing products. And as we were changing products, were we making sure to check labels? And even as we changed products, were the products consistent from can to can? <laughs> Or, you know, if it was frozen, whatever, that it, that product, you know, was consistent uh, from product to product. So there's a lot to keep track of there. And it's something that we, we came up with a process on how to do that and just an awareness. So I wrote this whole article called Apples for Applesauce, just alerting other special education directors or school administrators or people that were in charge of school lunches of saying, you know what? here's something we ran into and you might run into it too. So watch your labels. And then if you can order enough product for the whole year, 
Um, for example, if it was Applesoft, if we could have you know ordered for that entire year, school year, that would have served us well. And sometimes schools um, go with a you know third party vendor for their food service. So it's it's outsourced, and then that's kind of competitively bid out. So every month, what happens? So whether it be you know the chicken nuggets or the you know the meatballs or whatever it is. It, it, it's coming in from different sources. Um, so then it really becomes a task to try to keep track of what is the, you know, sugar, carbohydrates, um, all the different levels, uh, sodium. Some students with you know MSG uh, allergies and thresholds that they have to stay within. So uh, just a lot to keep track of, right? Just a lot. And that's changing. It's not the days when... You know, if you made mashed potatoes, like when I was going to school, you could actually, if you got to the um, kitchen setup uh, early, you could watch the cooks mash down the potatoes that they had just peeled and, and you know, get them all ready. I mean, it, you just don't have that. Things are all kind of just prepackaged this day. So... But yeah, so we have a lot of allergy management, 55 million, you know, we think of schools, but we have to think of, you know, the pre-K settings and also post-secondary. It's just, it's a lot. So thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now... Back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. A few more points here about food allergy basics. So food allergies affect approximately 50 million Americans, including 6 million children. Now, that number is increasing. I have spoken with school administrators who share, Dave, out of my kindergarten class of, you know, 50 kindergartners, I now have 20 that present with some kind of food allergy. And I might have, you know, 25 that present with some kind of allergy overall. And that could be an allergy to like clay or latex or something like that. So it used to be pretty rare uh, that we would have allergies. Even when I began in the field of student services 20 years ago, it was was rare. Uh, One, two, three students might be an allergy to uh, fish. You know, it could be an allergy to to milk, something like that. But now it's becoming um, where you, you almost have half of these incoming classes with allergies. Why? I don't know. But it is definitely something real uh, that these schools are experiencing. 
So food allergy is an immune system response to food that the body mistakenly believes is harmful. So what the body does is it can do anything from a mild rash, redness, to swelling, to anaphylactic reaction, to where your throat kind of closes up and you really need an EpiPen to be administered and 911 to be called. So you have this, this range of reactions. It's also scary because you don't know what the reaction is going to be. You could have a mild reaction 10 times and the 11th time that reaction could be severe. Or you might not even know that you have an allergy to something and suddenly you're consuming that food item, for example, and you have this allergic reaction. When a person with a food allergy eats the food, his or her immune system releases massive amounts of chemicals, including histamine, that trigger a cascade of symptoms that can affect the respiratory system, the gastrointestinal tract, the skin, and or the cardiovascular system. So we talked about including histamine. So kind of, you'll hear people sometimes say, I thought somebody was having a reaction you know, maybe in a home setting. So we gave some Benadryl, which is an anti-histamine. Um, and, and that was a way that we helped manage, manage it. That would be if it was mild. Obviously, if it was a severe reaction, uh, that's not going to do much. There would need to be an EpiPen um, administered and then likely um, going to a physician or calling 911. But sometimes, you know, you, you do hear those things of people giving Benadryl. That's, again, that's nothing I'm specifically advocating. I'm just saying those things are linked together um, with mild reactions. We hear that. There is no cure for food allergies. So you can go years, and I've known people who have well into their adult life have not had a food allergy and suddenly the food allergy appears. And it could be a food that they have eaten or have been exposed to numerous times. But it seems that once that food allergy happens, once you have that reaction from that point forward, you will always continue to have some type of reaction to that food. We think of you know peanut allergies, it's you know, pretty prevalent. Um, shellfish is another one. But again, once you have the reaction, there's no cure. And typically it doesn't... Um, it, it doesn't go away. I know some people who receive uh, shots, you know, prescribed by the doctor to decrease the um, likelihood of a severe reaction to that. But again, you know, that's, that's something that you would need to be aware of um, as a student services director or, of course, as a parent if you're managing this with your child. That gets really scary, right? You know, your child goes on field trips. They start to get into sports. They are traveling away from the school. What happens if they have this reaction? So just a lot of awareness that needs to come into food allergy and allergy management. The prevalence of food allergies appears to be increasing among children under the age of 18. And uh, that would be, you know, on average, at least, you know, two students in every classroom would have some type of food allergy. So think of, you know, we need teachers to be aware of this. We need this to be part of professional development in schools. What is, um, what is a food allergy? What is an allergy? What is an allergic reaction? How to identify it, and especially how to identify it as it progresses into a more severe condition, which could be anaphylaxis and life 
threatening. So when I went to school, when I was in my early years in school administration, these were not areas that were addressed in professional development. Uh, It was very case by case because it was rare. But now it needs to be something that is provided for all staff. Although food allergy desensitizations or desensitizations are being studied, these are not yet proven treatments. So strict avoidance is the only way to prevent an allergic reaction. So again, it's something that maybe in time there'll be a, a procedure, a process where then the person wouldn't have the reaction or as a severe reaction, but it's something that existing right now, um, there is no such remedy to a food allergy. It's very important too, because sometimes you'll hear people say this. Maybe you just need, if you're exposed to it more, if you're exposed to it in little doses or something like that, you'll build up a tolerance. Um, it comes to mind where I was watching some documentary of a man who was bitten by a rattlesnake like uh, 20 times or something like that. He had, he had researched these things or whatever. And after like the you know 12th time he got bit, the venom really didn't affect him. <laughs> it, and to the point where they were, re, uh, researchers were taking his blood and using it to create anti-venoms um, that they would distribute to hospitals so they could be administered to people who had been bitten by, you know, these poisonous snakes um, so they could recover. But it doesn't seem to work that way for food allergy. Managing a food allergy on a daily basis requires constant vigilance. So, yeah, you need to check what ingredients um, are in the product. Cross-contamination, it's really difficult going to a, a public, um, you know, restaurant and knowing what even was on the table before you sat down. Food courts and malls, they're, they're terrifying places um, for somebody that has a food allergy because, you know, this isn't the area where somebody sat um, with the, the one specific food. You know, they could have sat anywhere in the food court and all of the different choices and what could be airborne. And so it is, it is something where you do find yourself checking the box. You do find yourself very carefully preparing things in certain areas of your house. And then just there are certain things that never come into your house. Um, and there are people I know who even in grocery stores do not go down the aisles that contain bread, for example, because they have wheat allergies and they start to have a runny nose and, and eyes and things like that. They don't go down the bread aisle. So... Trace amounts of an allergen can trigger an allergic reaction in some individuals. This can be, you know, airborne through the ventilation system. So you'll see this sometimes where you'll enter a building, it will say, you know, no latex products are to enter this building. And again, it can be somebody who just gets a small trace of that product and then they they go right into an allergic reaction, sometimes accelerate to an anaphylactic reaction. So um, it's something that it's it's a little bit, just a a little bit can trigger a significant reaction by the body. Because again, what the body is doing is it's perceiving that this allergen is the enemy. It's it's mistaking it, you know, as the enemy is putting all forces out to combat it. So whether it's a little bit or a lot, it can have a very powerful reaction. 
Food allergy deaths do occur even among persons with a history of mild reactions in the past. So this is where we have to remember, you know, well, yes, Jim has had reactions to fish in the past. You know, he's, he's gotten red in the face. Um, he's, he's had some rashes or some rashes, you know, on his hands and things like that. It seems to go away, though. So that's – but um, – so things can get a little dismissive, right? But the reality is I worked with somebody – and they worked at Red Lobster all the way through college, and was a server at Red Lobster, and and you know was in contact all the time with shellfish. And then one day, had um, a reaction. Didn't have a reaction before, or if did, just just hadn't paid attention to it. Maybe it was a you know a little redness or something like that, and just hadn't recognized that it was a reaction to the, the shellfish, but had a severe reaction. Suddenly, one day, had to be medically treated and then had to immediately leave the job and to this day cannot eat or be in contact with shellfish. 911 must always be called after every anaphylactic reaction. That is the very severe reaction. And also, if you are administering an EpiPen, so an epinephrine pen. Other known, otherwise known as an EpiPen. We hear a lot about these on the news, EpiPens. You can buy them at, um, you know, Walgreens, uh, Walmart. They're not hard to get a hold of. There was actually, uh, I think, a manipulation of the price of those at one point not too long ago where they raised the prices because allergies were becoming more prevalent. So they were raising the prices on the EpiPens to make money. They only last a year before they expire. But now I think the prices have been managed again on those. Um but once an EpiPen is administered, so it, it kind of has a spring-loaded thing. If you, It actually is like a pen. It's just a little bit bigger. And you put it into a person's thigh, and then it, uh, it does the injector of the um, epinephrine, and then that does counter the reaction. Basically, it will stall the reaction for an amount of time. And you need to then contact 911, and the person then is treated, but it buys you the time to do that. So when schools administer an EpiPen, so usually a student will have an order from a doctor. They'll already come to school with this EpiPen, and schools can have EpiPens um, on standby. They and I recommend that they get them, and there there are easy ways to to acquire those. You contact your insurance carrier for the school, your health insurance carrier for your employees. And you say, listen, you know, we, we would want EpiPens. Would you donate some EpiPens to the school? I've never heard of an insurance carrier who said no. They will say, yes, how many do you need? And say, well, you know, we want to have extra one in the gym. We want uh, one in the cafeteria and extra one, you know, in the office. So maybe like three per building or something like that. So um, if not, this is something worth spending money on. Also, you'll have like the Lions Club, JCs, organizations like that who might want to donate things to schools. That's a great item to donate. Say, hey, why don't you donate some EpiPens? And by the way, they do expire in a year. So this you know, could be something that you donate kind of on an ongoing basis. But uh, yeah, so wanting to make sure 
that once you have those EpiPens, you know, you, you can have them around, you, you get people familiar with them. Because what's going to happen? What's going to happen is a student is going to start to, or a staff member or a visitor is going to start to escalate into an anaphylactic reaction where they're going to have a hard time breathing, they're going to be very red. And the person is, the staff member is going to possibly hesitate. I don't know if I should administer this or not, because if I administer it, well, then we have to call 911 and somebody has to pay for that. And, and is this really that severe or is it going to return back to more of a normal or manageable state? So talk about this in the book. I've talked about this before, but we have this thinking uh, process of, as humans where it's called the Taurus, T-O-R-U-S, where we expect things to return to normal. And sometimes we will delay our reactions to an emergency situation, a crisis, um, chaos, because we anticipate if we wait long enough, things will just kind of revert back to normal. So this is where professional development showing the symptoms of uh, a full reaction to people, you can show that with, you know, like a YouTube video um, and say, if, if they're doing this, if, if, if in your judgment, if this is, they're struggling, you know, to, um, you know, breathe and, and administer the EpiPen and we've got your back, you know, you're acting in their best interest to preserve their life, administer the EpiPen, follow the procedures then of having 911 contacted. Often a nurse will be available, but not always. Um, so yeah, that's, that is, it's great advice. And you know, a lot of these students, um, who carry their own EpiPens in school, they'll do it themselves. They know when they're having a reaction, they'll be able to self-administer that EpiPen too. But in the instance where they're not able to do it, then staff would jump in and do it. So it's a kind of a, it's nervous, right? I mean, it would be a nervous feeling to administer an EpiPen to someone, just like it'd be, you know, if you're doing like an AED, you know, you're pulling it out of the, the case and putting, you know, the, the pads on and administering the, the shock on someone that's, that's very invasive. I mean, but if it's something that you have practiced through professional development, you're following the symptoms and this is what needs to happen as a consequence to the, the symptoms to, yeah, you know, help this person, then you need to do that. So this whole 911 calling 911 gets tricky when parents seek to intervene in this process. So sometimes parents will put a lot of pressure on schools. Had an administrator friend, um, and they, they had a student um, who had some anaphylactic reactions due to uh, allergies. And these were unanticipated, um, you know, reactions that the, that the student had. They had done a good job of monitoring the environment. But again, this student was very sensitive to trace elements um, in the environment of the allergen. And the staff then would administer the EpiPen because the student would typically uh, present with a with a severe reaction. It, uh, you know, within a minute or two, would start to have trouble breathing, and um, so the staff would administer the the EpiPen per protocol, and then call nine one one. And then the parent was saying, "Well, I don't want nine one one called because then there are costs involved with this. Every time the ambulance, you know, comes to school, if they transport my 
my child or if I'm not able to make it. So the parent would also say, please call me. And the school did, but they called the parent after they called 911. And if the parent arrived before emergency services, the school would not, you know, turn that child over to the parent. The school would say emergency services is on their way. Once they get here between emergency services and that parent, they could make a decision on whether that child was going to be transported or not. But what was happening was this parent was very upset that the school was calling 911 and also was saying, um, you know, call me first. I will, I will, you know, come to the school I will transport the child, but that wasn't reliable. Um, and also from a liability perspective, it wasn't something that the school could take on. Um, so the parent approached the school board and made a case and said, you know, this this is presenting an undue financial burden to me. Um, and some of the school board members were sympathetic to that argument. And it took the school administrator and the nurse um, quite a, a bit of convincing, you know, to, to say to the school board, you know, listen, this is our policy and this is our medical protocol. And through the medical advisor to the school, we can't supersede this. We can't make exceptions to these rules because this is in the best interest of the student from a life and death perspective. And finally, you know, the school board relented on that and said, well, we have to follow our policy. But this gets into that whole discussion I had with attorney James Sibley, and that was podcast 95. And boy, was that a terrific podcast. I have so much respect for special education attorney James Sibley. And he was talking about... um, school boards. And in a lot of cases, you know, it's a very entry-level political position, right? And and f- from that, um, you can maybe work your way up to a, you know, city board or county board or something like that, if that's your aspiration or mayor. But it's really, um, there are a lot of these areas, there's not even people running, you know, so you kind of go uncontested. If someone puts their name out there and they vote for themselves, they're going to get in. So, and you come into these positions and there's a lot to learn. People come onto boards as, as an administrator, I would see this, you know, see turnover and they come onto a board. Sometimes they have an agenda also see so you have to work around that, but they don't understand these schools obligation to care for the medical needs of students. They don't get the whole depth of how that works, the inner workings. So then you need to bring them up to speed on that. But when they are addressed by a parent or parents of students, um, it can be really tricky for you as an administrator if suddenly the board and the superintendent start to question some of some of the practices of saying, well, we're getting a lot of feedback, a lot of pressure here from a certain, you know, constituent of parents regarding how we're managing allergies. And you really have to stay strong in that and kind of, I think, get out ahead of it and be educating folks about it. Um, getting things in newsletters and stuff like that. We get Allergy Awareness Month. Boy, if we do Allergy Awareness Month in September or October and we are getting information out to families and students and presenting to board members about how we're managing allergies, it kind of takes care of a lot of this stuff, right? Versus the end of the year in May 
or we have the board meeting a week before we go all go on summer break and we say, uh, yeah, here's what we did for Food Allergy Awareness Week, um, which was a week ago. Bad timing. Doesn't make sense. Some facts. There are eight foods that account for 90% of all food allergy reactions. The first, peanuts. Very common we hear about peanut allergies. Two, tree nuts, cashews, pecans, walnuts, etc. Three, milk, milk allergies. And also tactile milk allergies, meaning if you spill milk, it gets on your hands, your hands start to rash. I didn't know that that was a thing until about 10 years ago as a school administrator. I was surprised that one of our elementary students had a tactile milk allergy. Egg, wheat, soy, fish, shellfish. So fish as in like salmon, shellfish, crab, lobster. Not sure. A lot of schools are serving crab and lobster. But um, and however, again, the disclaimer on this is basically any any food, any item can result in an allergic reaction. So we talked about, you know, food allergies, food allergies, but there are so many more types of allergies. Prevalent um, would be latex. We hear of latex allergies. So how many products are made with latex, though? You know, people have the, the latex gloves, for example, that were used in by nurses and, and doctors and hospitals and cleaning things up. Those have pretty much been gone. I mean, people don't use this anymore. But how many products have latex in them. Um, it's amazing if we were to go through and identify every single product that could be in a classroom that has latex in it. Um, clay, students who have clay. So having to go through the art classroom and identify you know, any clays that are in shelves and getting rid of those um, for a student that might have a, a clay reaction, making sure that it if clay is used that those areas then are cleaned very thoroughly. But, you know, stuff that was pretty benign, like we were all making pottery and stuff like that out of clay as, as, as kids when I was growing up. Um, but it's, it's different, you know, right now because of, of these, these heightened um, uh, breadth and depth of allergies. So we have this interface between school policy and allergy management, which is tricky demand to, to manage, right? So your school policies um, that you need to provide students a free and appropriate public education, all students, so students with disabilities under the um, IDEA, in, uh, Individuals with Disability Education Act, and then also the ADA, American with Disabilities Act. So those come into play. So we need to provide a setting for students. And then we look at how school policies are structured. And this is where schools can make some uh, steps that can really create cumbersome issues down the road if they're not very thoughtful on how they're doing this. So let me give you an example. A school district comes out um, and, and just says, you know what, we're going to ban, um, we're, we're going to ban peanut butter and peanuts from the school. So we're just, it's gone. 
you know, not, it's off the menu. It's not a snack item for any any athletic events or anything like that. It's it's, it's done. It's a ban. And now with our policy, we have just we've banned this. We guarantee that this is a peanut-free school. So what have you just done? What you've just done by that policy and schools have, schools do this. You you've just promised that that entire school, that campus, you know, maybe a million square feet if it's a big high school, maybe that entire campus, you've just said this is a peanut-free campus. We are saying that there will be no peanut allergen in this campus. But you can't really do that, right? You can't enforce that. You can't check every student who comes in. Your gymnasium that holds 2,500 people, you don't know if somebody has something in their, their pocket, you know, those mix, those, those sweet and salty mixes, you know, you can get those at a vending machine, um, at a at a gas station or convenience store, you know, on your way to school. And they have, you know, raisins and peanuts and, you know, M&Ms and stuff like that. You don't know. Um, and have you wiped down every surface of the bleacher, every door handle that, where these potential allergens could be? Are you checking everybody as they're coming into the building? Well, no, of course you're not. But you've just created a policy that basically says this is what we're doing, right? This building is peanut-free. There are no peanut allergens in the building. And I've seen that uh, become an extreme struggle for some districts. One district in particular got to the point where they were routinely wiping down all of the handles in the building, buildings, wiping down all of the bleachers, um, during the and basketball games are wipe, wiping down, um, you know, basketballs, everything like like that. I mean, really investing a lot of resources, a lot of energy into making sure, to their best of their knowledge, that this was a peanut-free um, school. I mean, that there was no residue in the school after major events. Um, and of course, what do you do? You rent the schools gym or auditorium out on weekends to different groups or so I mean it runs into these these huge issues to try to manage so what that district did is they tried to undo that policy and and go down a different approach that they probably should have gone down originally and that is a policy of allergy awareness uh, recognizing okay we do have a student or students um, who present with, you know, peanut allergens or latex allergens or, or you know, whatever it could be. Um, and now we are going to be, let's say, a latex-aware school. So you're going to have your signage of saying, you know, these things um, are not going to be in our school. Or if we do have, for example, um, you know, certain things that are served on a menu we're going to make sure that we don't have cross-contamination on where these things are um, made, you know, in the in the kitchen. And then also when we when we clean tables, that we're going to also have a table that is designated as, for example, peanut-free. So students who have peanut allergies, if it's a peanut or you know peanut butter day, or if a student is bringing in a cold lunch and they have peanut butter. Um, they're not going to be at that table. And when, when that peanut um, allergy 
um, awareness table is, is cleaned, we're going to have its own cleaning product with it. It's not going to go from that table to another table to another table. So one of the the justifications for, for example, peanut allergies of having this awareness policy um, is, you know, peanut butter, for example, is a source of protein. It's, you don't have to refrigerate it. it. It's very convenient for a lot of parents. And if you don't have an airborne uh, reaction with a student, you know, if it is a physical contact reaction, um, many schools are able to manage this through how they prepare, you know, the uh, peanut butter sandwich and, and how students are situated within the lunchrooms. And then outside of that, typically it's no sharing of food. And there, you know, you also have to look at preparing the student with life skills for outside of school and also when, uh, you know, they, well, outside of school, while they're school age, but also as they get older, as they're interacting with different environments, they're self-advocating, you know, w- w- tell me how this was, was made in your, in your kitchen. Do you also have peanut or nut products that you, you make in the same kitchen? But you need to prepare that student. That's something, again, attorney James Sibley and I talked about is looking long range um, our discussion was more on, of course, safety drills of exempting students from safety drills and how in the moment that might seem like a good thing to do, but in the long run, you're not equipping that student with the requisite safety skills. And it can be the same thing with helping students to understand and navigate their environments because as much as we can control that school setting, we can't control the food court at the mall, um, and we can't control um, if they're visiting with, with some other people or if they are taking an Uber uh, ride and someone you know had a peanut butter sandwich in the vehicle before they got in or just, so you know, we need to look globally at how we are helping these students across all the settings that they're probably going to encounter in their life. So, a few things. So, so right there, to be allergy aware, I think, is a good move for policy. Um, again, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Legal counsel will advise districts or whoever their policy um, advisor is. But once you go with a ban, a ban gets pretty strict in legal terms. And you have to be able to enforce that assurance in your school and I don't know of any school that has the ability to do that because of the scope of the school, the people that are coming in and out of that building, and not only during the school day, but during after hours. So um, a few things that I've done is I've worked with food service, and we have had uh, discussions with with parents. Or we've opened up forums, you know, like one or two nights during a school year, maybe every other year. We do a presentation and say, um, you know, with maybe 10, 15 slides, just some general information like I shared today, but some district-specific situations saying, you know, we have these many students who are identified with with allergies, and here's here's the steps that we take to manage allergies and and some of those types of things uh, without getting, you know, specific to a student, but um, have listening sessions. So invite parents in and and say, do you feel like you're aware of what's happening 
in the school and, and what could make you more aware. Um, remember, this is where advisory comes in. When you have listening sessions, those are advisory. That's not a parent or parents to come in and tell you how to manage allergies. I want to make that very clear. It is advisory, but it's bringing in a perspective and having an opportunity to ask questions. And usually I would tie this in with like a review of policy. So this is where the food service, the director of food service can talk specifically about how they prepare meals and avoid cross-contamination. And then I can talk to you about the professional development component that goes in. You could even, you know, bring in books. I think we did that one time. We just had ordered um, a number of, of books or the librarians did. Um, I think like Alex's Terrible Allergies or whatever the books were at elementary. And we, we shared that we were integrating those into the classroom curriculums to help students become more aware. And then also um, just more accepting of their peers with allergies. So those went very well, those type of type of sessions. Um, they really weren't attended <laughs> that well. Um, but the fact that we made them available, I think was very important. And then also work with area school districts. So there can be, there's so much that can be gained by just holding. I did it. I, I hosted an allergy summit. We invited maybe five or six area districts. And then also this, our state, um, Department of Public Instruction, the nurse, she came down and we did a presentation on what we were doing as a district for practices. And then um, other districts talked about their practices. And it was a terrific time for the nurses of one district to talk to the nurses of another and say, well, here's you know what we do or like this and or you have this and here's a form and, and the food service folks to, to share information and the directors to say, here's how I'm getting professional development out. What are you doing? So this complete sharing cross-pollination of very important information. The DPI nurse thought it was exceptional and we went a step further with it. I met with my alternative school teacher. And I said, would your students be interested in a project where they studied allergies and then um, I'm willing to purchase, you know, like the black light. So, you know, you, you can wash your hands um, and for 60 seconds and then you put it under a black light. And if there's any residue left, like peanut residue or, or any, you know, just residue in general, it will show up, it'll luminesce, right? Um, and I said, I'm willing to, to, to purchase this, which could, could be part of this demonstration. And she took it and ran with it. And the students, they, they just totally became immersed in this. So maybe like 10 students. So they were part of this. They came in, did a presentation, um, and talked about, you know, really singing like the ABC song, um, but there, it was a twofold thing. So they did this presentation for this this kind of informal summit that we had. Maybe like forty people attended across across these districts. Um, but then they also went to all of the elementary schools, kind of this traveling circuit, and they would present. Maybe you know, one day it would be to a second grade class or second and third grade. And, uh, another day it would be the third and fourth and they would talk about food allergies and how allergens are on your hands and you know that, that if you use the, the squirty alcohol-based stuff it doesn't get rid of the allergens so you have to wash your hands and then the kids would go in to the bathrooms and they would um, 
be tasked with washing their hands. Uh, so they would show them a black light, like they would beforehand. What they 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 had this kind of box where then the kids could put their hands in, and they could see it. It was pretty pretty cool. They they figured out online how to make this things like out of cardboard and stuff. And and then when the kids came out, they did the same thing, and they would be able to see how much of the stuff they got off. And if they didn't get their hands clean enough, they would send them back in. But wow, was that important? And it also so it empowered. The, the alternative students, it was educational for our younger students, and it had an ancillary effect of kids washing hands during flu season. And it was later that year that the nurses came back and said, you know what, like we we had a drop this year in the kids who were out because of sickness, and we think it was better hand washing. <laughs> so we we had all of these, these kind of ripple effects. So... Um, one of the things too, you know, we talked about EpiPens and my nurses would take EpiPens and use them for training, expired EpiPens. So they would bring in a grapefruit and they would have staff stab the grapefruit with the EpiPen to simulate it as if they were stabbing, you know, somebody's thigh. And you could sense that auto injector going into that grapefruit. Of course, don't eat the grapefruit, right? But um, they said, you know, why just throw these, these things out? We want people to actually handle these things to, to get that feel and make that connection of what it's like if they are actually injecting this EpiPen. So that was one thing, too. They said, don't, don't ever throw these out. We need them for training, you know, and then we'll, we'll dispose of them afterwards. Um, so I want to wrap up with a thank you for everybody who works very diligently for allergy management and um, listening, you know, to parents who need to have this um, hypervigilance in all of the environments that they go into, and even students um, of asking the questions of how this was was made and and apprehensions, you know, when they they go on trips, and they do a great job of managing. This, but it is such a significant part of, um, of of life these days. You know, allergies, food allergies. Um, you know, just anaphylactic reaction. Of course, other areas, bee stings, things like that. So, um, very. Uh, we need to be very aware of this. It needs to be very much integrated into professional development, and much more. Uh, the direction we want, I think, when AEDs entered schools, the uh, defibrillators, I think we're going to have that kind of approach very soon with EpiPens, that those are going to be kind of maybe even in the same cases as AEDs. I don't know, but we're, we're not far off from that type of awareness just because of the saturation with the general public of, of the potential for an allergic reaction. I want to thank, again, the 405 Media, John Grant, the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California, for airing the Safety Doc Podcast. Jim Mallard, radioandpodcast.com. Check it out. New shows are being added. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert,
Dr. David Perodin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.